Isaiah 24 begins with this, verse 1, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. So Isaiah is in the midst of prophetic uh, words to the people. And if you were to broad stroke kind of the story of Isaiah, it's that God is calling his people to return to him, to repent of their sin and return to him. So God's people, the people that profess to have a faith in God, what really has happened is they've become more like the culture around them. They've blended in with the nations around them and not just remained faithful to God. And so God is calling them to return to him, to live the way he has called them to live. For the most part, they're not listening. And so God continues to tell them, if you don't return to me, I'm going to just lift my hand of blessing off of you and the nations are going to conquer you. In fact, I'm going to send the nation to conquer you. And we looked at a bit of that last week as God allows Assyria to conquer all of Judah except for Jerusalem. And Israel's already been in devastating battles and wars and the nations around them being taken over. And so for a short minute, the people inside of Jerusalem repent. They return to God. But that doesn't last long. And what we see is within a couple decades that they're back to their old practices. And this is a big warning for us in America that we, though we were founded by principles built out of Christianity, that sometimes we, we find ourselves more like American culture, more like Western culture, more like the people of the world around us, and less like the people of God. It's always a call to all of us who believe to return to God. And so God is now proclaiming through Isaiah judgment and, and, and uh, ultimately the destruction of the earth. Now this will find itself in Isaiah's uh, prophecy in the, the day of the people hearing it as their land will be wiped out, but also has this future implication when God judges the entirety of the earth in the final judgment and placing Jesus as reign over eternity. And so that's what we'll see. So he says this, listen to the violence that he describes. He says, he will twist the earth's surface and scatter its inhabitants. Verse two, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so the borrower, as with the creditor, so the debtor, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers and the world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The world often today is so corrupted that what we see is an unfair or uh, um, an imbalanced justice system where the rich get preferential treatment. We know this to be true in all kinds of cases as we hear news stories and things, but what this passage is about, and, that, and that's true for human history. If you're arrested today and you're broke, you get a public defender. If you're arrested today and you are wealthy, you get a high-priced attorney. Clearly, the one with a high-priced attorney is, has a better shot. Systems, the, the, the circumstances can all be the same, but better representation helps. And so in that, we know that's been true for world history, that the wealthy have had a better shot at things often, than the poor. And that's not fair. I don't know the way we can fix that. That isn't justice completely, but it, it is true. And, and this is what God is saying. In the final judgment, you can't be rich enough or good enough or pretty enough or even religious enough to escape judgment. God cries out that this judgment will be over all, rich and poor, master and slave, borrower, lender, debtor, creditor, 
that all will experience this judgment. So here's a note for you, that we are all equal before God. Today, wealth and power are often huge factors in escaping justice. But when God judges, it is inescapable. No matter of status, power, wealth, or position, justice is meted out regardless by God. That justice is meted out on all. And so what we need to hear is all are guilty. Like the Romans says, for all are guilty, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all of us have this guilt before God. No, not everyone is guilty of an arrestable crime and should face a judge. But all of us are guilty before God. We are imperfect, sinful beings. And in front of a holy God, we remember the words of like David in Psalm 51, who says, before you and you only have I sinned, as he speaks to God. So we know that we are guilty before God, and there is nothing that can buy our way out or in no injustice that will get us to, to skirt the judgment that God says, I will judge all sin. Now, we'll unpack what that means in a bit, but just hear that, that no one escapes. And that's where Isaiah is beginning. Verse 5, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. I wanted to dive into this. When we covered this passage, we, we're going to cover three chapters today. We covered this one alone, and then the next two that are a little shorter, we covered together. But they really give us one image that we need to see, the end of sin and death, and the beginning of the reign of peace. And so covering them all together, I want to press in and kind of find our points where we can relate quickly, so that as we move on, we understand where we fit in this picture. And so how does this relate to us today? There are many examples of sin in our culture that are embedded cultural sins. And, and I'll give you a couple. Uh, and I, I always try and find, you know, if you're politically liberal or politically conservative, or if you're, uh, you know, on one side of the conversation or another, I'm trying to find examples on both sides. And, and I don't mean trying like it's hard. Plenty of examples to go around. But in this one I was thinking of, and when I went through this the first time, we talked about immigration and abortion right? And, and, and those are things that are still issues politically today. They've kind of taken a backseat because of our current climate with the economy and the virus. But these two things are still being talked about. They're still political things. But understand when I say this, I don't mean the political topics. Where should a Christian be? Where should someone who follows Jesus be in this conversation? And a lot of times we let our our politics creep in and create the space for our faith rather than having politics be under that. And so abortion has run crazy wild over the last several decades in America. And somehow, in many places, the church has just embraced it or let it go. Well, we're talking about the murder of innocent children, right? We're, we're talking about life. The Bible calls it life. In fact, in the Bible, there is a penalty for if you injure a mom and you cause the child that she is carrying to die. There is a penalty for that life. The Bible recognizes this as life. The, the Bible tells us that God knits us together in the womb, that God is intrinsically involved in creating a life. On Mother's Day, that should resonate with us, right? That, that each child is a bit of a miracle and that none are guaranteed. And those of you that have had a struggle or a challenge becoming pregnant know better than the rest of us that there is, that there is no guarantee that you can be a parent. 
And so abortion has risen as one side of the conversation in most conservative churches, and it's a cause we should champion, that we should defend innocent life. But on the other side, consider the immigration things that were going on just before the virus, right? That, that we would talk about children being locked up under immigration circumstances. Now, again, without drifting into a political thing, just hear me that the excuse for doing this tends to be security. And I get that. And then over here, we have something else. We have these different things that, that go on. But as Christians, where should we be in this? We should defend innocent life, and even in this other, we should recognize life. Living people are what we're talking about. And I don't have any prescriptions on how to change the world or fix the world in this, but there should be a change of heart for the church. These are culturally embedded sins when we don't care for a, a child or a mom coming across a border. And I know that's not all that comes across, but just hear me, when we don't care for them, Ignore all the rest of the people that come across the border. If we don't care for children, if we don't care for moms, if we don't care for people escaping persecution, then where are we as a church? Find me a place in Scripture where the immigrant isn't cared for. And then find me a place in Scripture where the innocent are not held high. But in America today, we've made them political issues rather than issues of our faith. So here's a note for you. Deep cultural sin. Our current culture is so corrupt that one half, and I mean one half of believers, champion the death of innocent unborn, calling it choice, and the other half champion imprisoning immigrant children, calling it security. So just based on that, just based on the church and the church being politicized in this area, why would God not judge us? Why would God not judge America, even if we get outside the church and look at our nation founded on biblical principles? Why would God not say, how did you miss this? So when Isaiah proclaims judgment, understand this, he is calling out the people of God and a nation simultaneously. And it's different than America, but we, we do have roots in being built by Christians, by being built of, by people of faith, and, and across the spectrum, but built by people of faith. We do believe in, in, a, in rights given to us, endowed by our creator. We admit to a creator in our country. We know that that's where we get who we are. That's where we get what we are. That's, what we get. That's where we derive our rights from. It's from God. When we lose sight of that, that's when we, we lose sight of what God is doing within us. So we have deep cultural things that take place that are sinful, that our, our churches don't tend to deal with very well. They've politicized them, and, and the cultures politicized them. We need to see that this relates to us, that we have things embedded in us that we just need to admit to are wrong. And I don't have any big solutions. Again, I couldn't fix the problem. I don't want the job. But we can look and see that God says this is wrong. Verse 7, the wine mourns, the vine languishes, and the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. Isaiah begins to point to something that he has a theme throughout his entirety, of the entirety of the book. And there's, there's two cities that Isaiah talks about. This is the city of man, the city that is built to glorify man apart from God. And then Isaiah portrays also a city built by God that overcomes the city of man. 
So here's the two cities of Isaiah. Isaiah repeatedly tells of two cities, one built by sinful humanity, the other built by the holiness of God. Isaiah pleads with the people to abandon a temporary human dwelling for life in Christ that cannot be taken from them. That they would abandon this temporary life. That they would abandon an entitlement to what they desire, what they want here in focus of an eternity. And that is, and we'll cover this later, but it's incredibly hard to divorce ourselves from this life. This is what we know. This is what we have. But as God portrays something greater, we need to look beyond this. When we consider that our comfort, our life, our incomes, our joy, our, our freedoms, whatever it might be here, that those become the most important thing, then we're missing what God is saying. That God is pointing us forward to something greater. And if I asked anybody, you can ask a little kid this, like, do you want something less or greater? Do you want something that's worse or better? You know what I mean? Like, we all want the thing that is greater. But when we don't know what that is, or we have a hard time understanding, we settle for the thing that is lesser or worse. And that's this life. This life will always be broken. This world is corrupted by sin. We've done it. Others have done it. We inherited it. It's just what it is. And this world will be overcome by an eternity. The thousands and thousands of years this world has been around will be dwarfed by an eternity in Jesus. So hanging on to the temporal and missing the eternal is what Isaiah is talking about. Verse 13, it says this, For thus it will be in the midst of the earth. Among the nations is when an olive tree is beaten as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, people give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me for the traitors have betrayed with betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Here's the response. And it sounds like it's going along really good and people are worshiping and praising. And all of a sudden, Isaiah speaks up and he's like, woe is me. And he says this a couple times throughout, the, throughout his writing. But it's got this sense of like, I'm undone. I'm going to die because of my grief. And what's going on as God proclaims judgment, there are really two responses We'll just use modern day for Christians. There are two real responses. We can celebrate that God will be victorious and judge all evil. And that is something that should be celebrated. We want evil to be, to be judged and to be triumphed over. Like we celebrate when someone bad is taken off the streets and, and sent to prison. Or we, we celebrate when something wrong is righted. But Isaiah also sees another right response. What he sees is people being judged. And so, yes, we want evil to be overcome, but Isaiah notes that it's people that are being judged. And for us as Christians, we, we want evil to be overcome, but we want people to meet Jesus. And so as justice is being meted out, as judgment is taking hold, as Isaiah proclaims this judgment, it's on people. And yes, evil is being overcome, and we worship and we celebrate because of that. But people are being judged. People are dying here. And Isaiah remembers at the end of every judgment is a person and his heart breaks for people. Verse 17, terror and the pit and snare upon you. The terror and the pit and the snare are upon you. Excuse me, O inhabitants of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are open and the foundations of the earth tremble. 
The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. Listen to this language. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls, and it will not rise again. There is no escaping the judgment of God. As God meets out judgment over the land, the people in that day will be decimated. It will be for them it will be the nation surrounding them. We'll talk about that in a minute. But also, when we look forward to this ultimate fulfillment in Christ, the entire earth has to be destroyed in order to be made new. Just like we have to die to be in God's presence. That this body, this broken body has to go away. That this flesh must go. So must this earth. Like This must be rebuilt. And in order to do that, God must tear it down and then rebuild it. Verse 21, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and many days they will be punished when the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. Listen, on that day, Isaiah says, on the day of judgment, on this day where God finally executes his judgment, here's what will take place. And he says, on that day, the Lord will post punish the host of heaven. That clearly is looking forward to eternity. He will punish them in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. And he talks about locking up the kings of the earth. That will actually take place in the, in the day being written to. So Isaiah is proclaiming this to a culture that will hear this and see this, but it also anticipates a complete fulfillment when Christ returns. Isaiah 24, just to sum it up for you, Judgment now and final judgment coming in Christ. So God's judgment on his people, Judah and Israel, their oppressors, Assyria and Babylon, their deniers of God, Egypt and Persia, all foreshadow the final judgment when God purges the earth of sin completely and Jesus reigns forever. And again, we, we anticipate, we look forward to that day. There isn't probably any of us that don't want things that are wrong now to be made right. In this season of coronavirus, we want the earth to be purged of viruses. We want the earth to be purged of death and illness. And that is all just because of historic sin. Not one sin equals one virus, but just the brokenness and the curse on this earth because of all our sin. We all look forward to a day where that's purged, where that's rid of. But what must take place is judgment to get rid of it. So Isaiah proclaims this judgment now and this eternal reign of Jesus. Isaiah 25 verse 1. O Lord, you are my God, Isaiah says. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Planned, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. Isaiah in this breaks out into a song of worship. He says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. He says because of God's sovereign plan, he calls them plans formed of all old that are faithful and true, faithful and sure. He says, because you have a plan, because you are sovereign God, because you are God and what you say will be, Isaiah worships. He has moved from the pain of judgment into a place of worship as he gets beyond the judgment and looks to the eternity of Christ. Verse two, for you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. So again, God destroys the city of man, the very thing 
that was built to honor humanity and dishonor God. God says he has destroyed it. And Isaiah worships at that point. The humanity, the, the, the pride, the arrogance, the hubris of humanity is destroyed. Verse 3, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For if you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. I want you to hear this other judgment God proclaims. He says, you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Isaiah is one of, the, one, of, uh, one of the many common themes in Isaiah as he proclaims judgment on the people. Again, the people of God. And for us as a church, let me kind of pause there. For us as a church, we need to remember that when God is speaking, God is speaking to us. When God is calling us out for sin, it's for us. God doesn't just equip us with all the sins of the world so that we can go out there and tell them all how they need to change. God is calling us to change. God is calling us to repentance. And yes, he's calling us to know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And then in the world, we will encounter people that are passionate about what is wrong, but that we are to be different. And by our transformation, by our difference, by our distinctions, others will see Jesus. And that that is the point. Isaiah is calling out the people of God. He's not just saying all the nations around are evil. He's saying our nation, God's people, are wicked, and he points out again and again, a common theme in Isaiah is God's people not caring for the poor, the weak, the marginalized. So here's a call to repentance. It was good for them. It's good. We need it for us today. God is often seen caring for the poor and the weak. As followers of Jesus, we should do this today. God's heart for marginalized people has not changed. God's heart for marginalized people has not changed. We need to imitate Christ in this, that we need to be like God has created us to be. We need to be a heart for the weak, for the poor, for the downtrodden, for the marginalized. That's who we need to be. And in conservative churches like ours, which I am proud to be a part of, we miss this, though. This is a hole in our game for sure. This is an area of our faith that we miss. The care for people that are oppressed, hurting, poor, weak. Family Table LA, uh, our follow-up meetings at 1230 next Sunday. And part of us just recognizing in Isaiah that Isaiah calls God's people to care for people in need, to tangibly, physically care for people in need. Part of our response to that is we have picked up this relationship with Pastor Mike, uh, Pastor Mike Brown and Family Table LA, and that we are walking with him to find a place where we can contribute locally. If you live stream from out of the area or even out of state, as a part of this church, we want to find a place where you can invest, where you can care. And maybe there's a collection of you uh, in a certain area. Maybe we can partner together and care. Or even just be a part of what we're doing. But that's a step we have taken because we've recognized in our church there was a hole that we were missing in our faith, in our praxis, that we needed to step out. And so we just decided we will partner with the foster care system in L.A. We will find ways to care for, in this case, foster kids, those in need. Verse 6, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. So what we see is Isaiah now is, is talking about seeing a victory banquet take place. 
The question we have to ask is victory over what? Verse 7, Isaiah will answer our question. He sa- and it says, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and from the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So what victory is Isaiah seeing being celebrated? It's a victory over death itself. You see, the gospel is this, that God created us and loves us, right? We talk about this every week, that God made you and I, and that he designed us to be worshipers of his, and he called us into a relationship that is hallmarked by our obedience of God. Unlike every other relationship that we have, the relationship I have with some of you or my wife or anybody here, it's not peers who are just positionally maybe in a different place as a pastor or as a staff leader or whatever. This is us under God, God who created us, who designed us, who knows how we work best. And the way we are built, if you will, is to be obedient to God. But humanity, as we all know, has sinned. We have sinned and everyone before us sinned and we inherited that guilt. But God said, on that day that you disobey me, you will surely die. Death is the result of sin. Sin has caused death. So every human being, unless Jesus returns first, every human being will die. I anticipate that one day I will die. It's been all over social media, but I lost a friend over the weekend. Not a super, super close friend, but one I admired and have known for many years. Death is a reality, and death is the result of sin. Sin causes death. Death is the curse of us being sinful and separated from God. But God didn't just leave us with no way out. God sent Jesus. God sent his son to die. So Jesus lived a sinless life, the life that we are called to live, but did not, have not, will not. And then he died a a brutal, vicarious death, a substitutionary death, where he takes the penalty of our sin. He was laid in the ground that we might know our forgiveness is covered. But then he rose from the dead, giving us new life. Jesus, who sits on the throne today, has ascended back to heaven, accomplishing all we need for our faith, pouring out his spirit into us that we might live as he has called us to live. Jesus has had victory over death. And ultimately, God will purge death from the earth. In fact, you fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible and Revelation quotes Isaiah. Here it is for you in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The visible, physical presence of God is what we get to look forward to. It goes on, it says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. As Isaiah quotes Revelation, or as Revelation quotes Isaiah, John quotes Isaiah, he reminds us that one of the things to be defeated is death and pain and tears. And that death will be defeated by Jesus and that in eternity, death will be no more. What, an, what a day we can eagerly look forward to where we don't worry about a virus or an economy, no matter where you are in this. But again, if we're more worried about our freedoms being trampled on and all and just all these things about ourselves, then maybe we're building that city of man. Maybe we're not invested in that city that is eternal as God is calling us to remember to be. The care for the least of these, the love for those around us more than a love for self. 
Verse 9, it says this, And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Listen to the words the saved or the believers or the body of Christ say. We have waited on him. Let us be glad. We have waited on him. Let us rejoice. A piece or a large part of our existence as Christians in this world remaining in this world, being in this world, but not of this world. A lot of who we are is this, that we wait, that we endure, that we are patient, that Jesus has equipped us to do that, but that most of what we long for, we wait for. Most of what we endure is just a part of this broken world. Isaiah saw that clearly clearly as he looks to that moment where the saints say, we have waited, we have endured, we have longed for this day. Verse 10, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down on a dunghill and he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim, but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. Destruction judgment. They clear the way for peace. I love that image. For the hand of the Lord will spread out like the hands of a swimmer clearing his way as he wipes out the city of man. That city of man is repeated in Isaiah 24 when it talks about judgment, Isaiah 25 when it talks about eternity and peace, and Isaiah 26 when it portrays eternity in a reign by, reigning with Christ. Is Jesus as our physical King of kings and Lord of lords, not just our spiritual anticipation of that day. But as Jesus reigns, we get this reminder that what God must do to get us there is to wipe away the city that we have built, the nation that we have built, the lives that we have built, all the things that we have built to glorify ourselves, be that nationally or in our state or in our homes or in our churches. A strong caution came out of the death of this pastor, of Darren Patrick, that many of you read about. As he had a very public failure several years ago, he said this, he says, I was beginning to build my own brand and not that of Jesus. He was building a city of man, his city, and it crashed down all around him, and then God was able to restore him. Uh, I would suggest that he didn't overcome all those things that the pains left inside remained throughout this last season. But we remind ourselves that what we build is often to glorify us. And when what we're building is to glorify us, God will tear it down. We don't want to be inside that where God stretches out his hands like a swimmer and just when he just wipes everything out. We don't want to be what God has to wipe out. We want to be the place, in a place, where God says, well done, you have endured well. Well done, my good and faithful servant. We want to lift you up now, not destroy you so that we can bring you into eternity. I'm going to close with this. I'm going to skip down to 26 uh, verse 1. It says this, And that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. So we see God now building the city of God. We see this as God says, Listen, I lift up these walls. I build this strong city. The note says this, Isaiah proclaims the destruction of all that is built on earth to glorify man, 
and how it is replaced by the eternal city of God, the permanent place of peace for all of us who are in Christ. The next verse says this, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter. That's us, a righteous people that keep faith, and it's calling us to keep faith, that open up the gates that we might enter. Verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Right? In perfect peace. If you are in perfect peace in this viral, economic, crazy season, it must be because your minds are fixed on Jesus. Because the world is going crazy around us. But we look forward to this new human existence. God portrays eternity in very human earthly terms, but without sin. Our view of life is so clouded by sin that we can't possibly even imagine what is ready for us. We must place our trust and our faith in God. Next verse, verse 4, trust in the Lord forever. The Lord God is an everlasting rock. He has humbled the inhabitants of the high, the lofty city, the city of man. He lays it low, lays it to the ground, casts it off to the dust. He humbles humanity, reminding us sometimes the things we fight for are about us. So fighting the wrong fight. Christians are too often fighting for the comfort and freedom of this life, not knowing that we are fighting against God. Hear me when I say this. When we are fighting for today, we are fighting against God. God tells us to lift our eyes up off of today and look to the span of eternity where we will be with him forever and quit building everything here. And again, it's almost impossible to even fathom that this isn't it because this is what we know. But God calls us to something more and to better. God wants us to fight for eternity and not for today. I'm going to close. If you'd skip all the way down to verse 20 and 21, God says this, come my people, enter into your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his, from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and no more cover its slain. The call for us today is endurance. Whatever it is we're enduring, the call is for us as believers to endure, to be faithful, to be strong, to look forward to what God has for us. In Romans, it says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul, many years later, almost a thousand years later, writes these words that I don't consider that the sufferings of this present time and understand Paul's in jail when he writes this. Paul is actually suffering. And he says, I don't consider this is even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So I want to give you two notes as we close. One for a recap and one for us today. First one, the recap. Prophecies of judgment and peace. Isaiah speaks to the people alive in his day. Well, God proclaims eternal fulfillment in Christ. Where death and sin are destroyed, the wicked are removed from the earth, and peace reigns eternally for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a massive theme in Isaiah, that, I, that God is destroying what man has built, and he is preparing what he has built for Christ to reign in. Where do we want to be in that? In the grand sweep of history, we want to be people that are looking towards God's kingdom and not building our own. So for us, a call to endure, and I'll close with this this slide. We are to live in this world, but fix our eyes beyond it. Isaiah shows us how to see what God is doing so that we remain faithful to Jesus while awaiting eternity. Endure today. Stop fighting for today. Look for eternity. Look, lift your eyes up to God. Figure out where it is that you've been fighting for this existence, building the city 
of humanity, the city of man, your own city, a kingdom to glorify yourself or those around us, a nation that's really about self and rights and all these things that doesn't look to an eternity. When we build this kingdom, we forget that there are lost people out there that need to be an eternity. We forget that the God who created us has called us to something more, that we were designed to be obedient to God, to worship God, to bring glory to God, not to bring glory to ourselves. In fact, that is the inherent sin in all of us, to bring glory to ourselves. Let us change that. Let us lay that down. Let us bring glory to God. Let us worship God and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. God, as we gather digitally around the nation, many of us local, many of us apart, we're so grateful for this medium of technology, Lord. We're grateful that in this season, we can still gather virtually. We thank you that we live in an area of technology that allows us to still gather as a church virtually, Lord, that we get to do this, that we meet all throughout the week, six, five days a week, something like that, in small group communities where we build that community together, where we have a video conversation with people where it's a back and forth, not just this one-sided live stream. But God, we love you, and we do an anticipation of your return, of an anticipation of eternity. We know that this world will perpetually get worse until you come and say enough. And in that moment, God, you will change everything. And that we will live forever with you at that moment. That Jesus will reign in person. It says that in Revelation, there will be no need for a sun because Jesus will light the earth. What an amazing way to look forward. To look into eternity. To anticipate the beauty of forever. God, help us live here and now in this temporal existence that we know nothing other than. But help us lift our eyes off of this this earth, this life, this day, and let us look to you. So the word says, lift our eyes up, set our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and now is seated the right hand of the throne of God. Let us do that too. Let us lift our eyes off of temporal suffering. Let us endure well. Let us look to eternity. Let us hear the words of Isaiah and let us tear down our own cities and let's look to the city of God. Thank you, Jesus. It's all because of you that we can even talk about this, that we can even be reconciled to God. So it's in your name we pray. Amen.